Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today, I am once again joined by my student, John. And we're about to dive into the differences between low-stakes live cash games and high-stakes live cash games. John, welcome back to Tactical Tuesday. Thanks for having me on, Brad. Um... I think I probably won't have too much to add about the high six live cash game since I don't have very much experience playing in them, um, but I'm sure you can handle that part of the episode. Luckily, I have played a lot of low six live cash in uh, in the last three years, so um, hopefully I can add in some insight about what the, the smaller games are like. Well, that's going to change in the near future, right? Once Once we kind of get out of COVID world, I assume... You know, you, you've got your eyes on taking some shots at, at some of the bigger bigger stakes games in the live arena, right? For sure. I think, um, you know, I was playing 510 when COVID hit uh, at the beginning of last year. And hopefully with the improvement that I've seen um, since coaching with you and, and, and playing a lot online, hopefully when I get back to playing live, I can uh, start taking some shots at some 1020 or, or uh, 1025. And I think you're going to do very well. And we'll talk about those shots whenever we can get back to safely playing live poker. And I guess we'll start out by sort of defining what we mean by low stakes and high stakes. And I'll start with you. What does low stakes mean to you? What stakes does that uh, include? So low stakes to me includes everything up to 2.5 and 5.5. I think 5.10 is in this strange kind of middling ground between low stakes and high stakes. It it depends mostly, I think, on where you're playing 510. Uh, for example, where I played most of my 510 at the beginning of last year at Commerce, the games are capped at 150 big blinds. Um, and the 510 game definitely plays significantly smaller than, let's say, uh, the 510 game pretty much down the street at the bike, where um, I think it's either like 3K cap or no cap. Uh, so I think 510... It, it really depends on where you play. I would say like those 1500 cap games, I would um, categorize as, as more similar to the lower stakes games. And I would say the uncapped or maybe the 300 big blind cap games um, are probably going to resemble um, higher stakes cash games. And I can help you out a little bit when you said it's a very weird ground in between low and high stakes. We could just call that middle stakes <laughs> right <laughs> just medium stakes depending on where you play the 510 game could just feel like a 55 game which is pretty much the case at commerce but if you go i don't know you play 510 at like win where it's uncapped and people are have like 10k stack like five figure stack or buying in for like five figure stacks i feel like the kind of the feel and the vibe of the game will be i don't know very very different from 510 in la yeah, I'll give you that in probably somewhere like Texas, right? We can just classify those as like low medium stakes and then medium high stakes. I think that makes sense because there's a spectrum of like how big 510 plays, but 
five ten is getting around like it, it basically if you can win or lose five k or six k in a day, the stakes are getting getting fairly significant, right? Like that that's not an amount that I, I think that your average card player can just go in there and drop and feel feel fine afterwards. So we're gonna bucket this conversation into strategic and environmental differences. In the first half, we're going to cover the strategic differences between low stakes live cash games and the high stakes live cash games. And so strategically, John and I made a list because that's that's what we do. We make lists. The first thing that we put on the list was rake, drop versus time. This is a thing that I can offer almost no wisdom or information on because for better or worse, I'm the person who sits down and immediately informs players on my right and players on my left. I don't chop and I don't even know what the rake is, but I just don't chop. <laughs> like I just, um, I haven't really ever focused on the rake and maybe it's because I haven't played a lot of one, two where like taking a $7 cut is kind of a big deal. So I'm going to throw the ball to John and get John's thoughts on the rate differences at low stakes. Yeah, so I think, I mean, you probably, Brad probably hasn't played in very many drop games versus time rate games. Um, I think in time rate games, if you sit down and tell everyone that you're not chopping blind versus blind, most people probably wouldn't even care. They'd just be like, yeah, we don't we don't chop either. <laughs> but in... Games that are not time rate in games uh, where they where the casino just takes a percentage of the pot right right on the flop. Um, I think rake is something that players need to be thinking about a lot, and it's it's. I think rake is something that I I, I bring up a lot on the podcast, and it's it's something that I talk about a lot in hand breakdowns, um, even in the Slack group in Greatness Village. And I think it's maybe one of the biggest drivers of pre flop decision making um, at lower stakes, or, or at least I think it should be. Uh, I think, you know, in California where at five, five, I know, um, the casino takes an immediate $5 on the flop, you know, you, it just hamstrings you into like not being able to limp the small blind or, um, it, it sort of incentivizes things like raising like four X or five X pre-flop. Whereas online, you, you, you know, if you see someone open that, that large pre, you can probably instantly label them as a fish. So, yeah, I, I think that paying attention to rake and, and kind of being cognizant of it and, and understanding how it affects your strategy, particularly preflop is really important for um, people playing like one, two, two, five, and, and even five, 10 games that have uh, drop rake. So I have played at my fair share of drop rake games. One of them specifically, it's a story I remember will never forget was playing a bunch in LA played some in South Florida at the Isle casino and it was a $1,500 max buy-in. I bought in and just immediately told the people to my left and right, like, I didn't know what the rake was, but I just said, I'm not chopping. Like, <laughs> that was that was like my hard, hard line stance that I sat down at the table. So, of course, like the first time I buy in, it gets folded around to me. I end up playing a 3K pot and going broke in a spot where I verbalized that I was not chopping and like what? the whole table cheered, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> they're happy that the, the person that like is not chopping just went broke. So tell me the difference, John, but from somebody that is just a rake noob, 
what, why am I incentivized to chop with a significant skill advantage when I'm in the big blind facing somebody who's a fish in the small blind? Why am I incentivized to chop rather than just playing, playing it out? Okay. I think if you want it to be purely ruthless and all you were thinking about was your win rate, I think the way to do it is not chop from the big blind and chop from the small blind. Yeah, where, you can't do that though. Like you gotta, you gotta do both. You can't, you can't just chop from like when I'm out of position. Okay, so technically, there's no rule saying you have to do both, right? But it's yeah, well, not, there's no chop rule. It's like a, it's like an etiquette thing. Yeah, right. right. Like if you chop the small blind, you're expected to also chop the big blind. I'm never gonna do that. Like I'm never gonna shoot that. I'm, I'm never gonna like. I think it, honestly, it's kind of like shooting an angle. It's just like it's taking advantage of people. Like I'm never right. gonna do that. So like my alternative to that is just to never chop in both directions. I, yeah, so I guess like to do that, you'd have to be pretty sure that like the amount you're winning from the big blind is more than like the amount you're losing from the small blind by not by not chopping. Um, and to could, be fair, I have no idea. I've never even done the math. I, I'm just, this is, this is a testimony to a little bit of my arrogance as it relates to live poker in that I didn't do the math, but I'm there to play poker and I know that I'm better than most players in the blinds, so I just want to play no matter what. Yeah, I mean, okay, so here would be here would be my advice if you don't want to break etiquette and you still want to be ruthless is you look at who's sitting on your left and you look at who's sitting on your right before you decide whether you chop or not. And if the situation looks favorable for you to not chop, uh, then just tell everyone you don't chop. And, and if the person on your left is particularly tough, then... Uh, Maybe tell them today you're chopping. <laughs> <laughs> there's no chance, man. I, I know myself, but there's no chance because like once you get the reputation of like not chopping to change it based on who's on my left, like to me, it just projects weakness or some kind of fear against a specific player. And like, I have definitely been known to do things that are counter to my win rate to save face i guess is the the right way to to put it like for instance you know whenever garrett sits down at a table like in la it's like musical chairs and he always ended up on my left but i'd be damned if i'm gonna stand up <laughs> and let garrett know that i don't want him on my left that i'm afraid of him right like it's just it, it's not a thing that happens so i put myself in poor situations just out of pride basically uh i definitely understand the ego thing it's you know, by, by like admitting that the person to your left is, is better than you are, you're sort of admitting it like to the whole table. Also, I think just letting the person to your left know that you sort of overly respect them to the point of maybe fear is really bad for you long-term. Like they can, they're probably just going to pound you for the duration of a session, even if you don't, if you don't chop, knowing that you're somewhat scared of, of playing versus, uh, versus them. So it's, I mean, let me tell you, if the, to the people that stand up actively to not let some aggressive, really great player on their left as somebody that's playing at the table, I am automatically losing respect for all the people that stand up and move their chip stack just so that that player is not on their left. Like, I'm, I'm automatically saying, okay, that's a player I'm going to be aggressive against. That's a player who doesn't want to feel uncomfortable. Uh, and, yeah, maybe that's sort of <laughs> egotistical or arrogant or prideful, but that's just how how I've I viewed it. it. It certainly don't take what I'm saying here as being a plus EV play because it's not a plus EV play. But I think that 
the way that I've always approached live poker is that there are going to be some situations where you kind of take the worst of it and that's just going to be okay. You can't always have the edge. You can't always have the best of it. And a good example of this was, you know, a group of players that basically would wait until a whale sat down and then they would just fill the game around the whale. And otherwise they're just sitting there like eating food and hanging out and texting on their phone, waiting for the whale to show up. And that's another thing that I think is like, yeah, it it feels, you know, I'm just not going to respect those guys. Yeah. I think that like it not being a plus EV decision is a little bit, is a little bit misleading. And this is like, these are the types of decisions that I think I struggle with um, kind of in my daily life and my like poker career as well. It's like, Okay, like letting the tough player have the seat to your left every single time is not a plus EV decision in the short term. But the way I view it is that like if you if you're treating poker seriously and you're taking it, you know, you're you're taking it to be your career, the goal is like not short-term EV. It's to be as good as you can get in the long term. And one of the best ways to get better, in my opinion, is to play against tough opponents and like be in tough situations with uh, regularity, like be play against opponents that are going to punish you for making mistakes instead of against fish that are just going to let you get away with playing sloppy poker all the time. Um, obviously, like the downside to that is like you don't reach the long term as frequently when <laughs> when you know when you're just losing to the tough player on your left all the time. But like I don't know, I, I think it's something that this is something that like I've brought up uh, to you, Brad, as well. Um, I think like when I first started playing five ten like online, I told you like my goal was to just like be able to battle whoever shows up on like Monday morning and just like fire up four tables and just play, play, play whoever's there. Um, and you know, that's sort of how I treated like, um, 100 NL and like 200 NL. I thought like that was just like the best way to get better. And uh, I still think so. Like I, I still like the sessions where I feel like I improve the most post sessions are the ones where good players punish me for mistakes that like, I don't even know are mistakes until I get punished. And like, I end up either, you know, going into Pio or just thinking about the hand logically and, and I feel like that's where I see a lot of my own improvement. Um, I know that's like, that's, it, that goes counter to like a lot of like poker advice that I've heard, which is just like find good games, find fish, find whales and try to play with them as much as you can and um, like make the most money possible. I think either, e- either extreme I think is bad, right? Like yeah. the other extreme is just always seeking out tough games just to play in tough games. And I don't think that's really great either. Just putting yourself in waters that you're just not going to be winning at. It's going to cause like tons of emotional damage, um, lots of struggles. I don't think that's necessarily a great thing either. So kind of like being in the middle of the two feels, feels like the best place. Yeah. I think like the, the, Example I think of when you think of like the extreme of just playing tough people all the time is uh, someone like Isildur who just doesn't care about having the best of it or doesn't care about being in a plus EV situation or playing against opponents that are worse than he is or playing a game that he doesn't understand. Um, yeah, he, he, you know, he goes broke a lot. And the big reason for that is just his game selection. Absolutely. A uh, little secondary, secondary benefit. And I don't even know how we're talking about, uh, all this stuff when we're doing like rake drop first time, this is like number one on the list. And we're, <laughs> I don't know how we, <laughs> how we segue to this, but to wrap up the rake drop versus time talking point, I would say networking is also a big deal as it relates to live poker career. And it's hard to network if you're constantly trying to grab every single edge that you can. And you're like switching seats at the table very regularly 
I think that like the alpha predators at that stake just probably going to be less inclined to respect you and network with you and invite you into their their tribe, their their clique, which I think is very, very valuable as it relates to live poker. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's um, absolutely true. I think I, I don't have a lot of experience like or any experience like networking to get into high stakes games or, or talk like networking with, uh, um, you know, high stakes players. We're going to talk about that environmental next. So we don't, we don't necessarily want to segue into that. Like just like, I think a really good example is uh Thalo on your, on your, one of your recent podcasts where he, he talked about the story of, of how he like punched a whale in the face and got like instantly put in a like <laughs> chokehold from like an Israeli guard, ex Israeli guard, whatever super soldier yeah. person. And like, he said, like, the only reason I'm right. not killing you and burying you in the desert is because, like, you give me action on flips when I'm stuck and, like, you know, you drink with us and, like, you seem like a cool dude. And, like, that's that's an example of, like, Fallow giving up EV. Like, flipping at the end of a session is not, like, plus EV for him or, like, pounding drinks while playing poker is not, you know, it's probably maybe not, like, the preferred state he decides to play in. But, like, it gets you preferential treatment from the people that you want preferential treatment from. And obviously not getting killed is a very extreme example, but you know, just getting invited back into the, to the very good games or the, the high stakes games, I think is, um, is usually good enough for most people. For me, it's not even about that. It's about creating long-term relationships with people, making friends. I think that it's much easier to make friends when you're not out there just trying to never give up any single edge. And you're always trying to like, Oh, I'm only going to play, the stake above what I normally play when a whale comes in and then I'm going to play super nitty and be like shitty the whole time. Right. Like, come on, get out of here. Like you're not, you're not going to be building any relationships using that um, approach. So anyway, yeah, we're going to move on to stack depths. Number two on our list, believe it or not, we have eight of these and this is might be the longest tactical Tuesday in the history of tactical Tuesdays or one of the biggest differences between low stakes and high stakes, live cash games, stack depths, at low stakes, you're typically playing around 100 big blinds. High stakes, you're playing uncapped. Tell me your thoughts on that, John. Let me let me throw this back to you real quick. What would you say is the average stack size in the high stakes games that you play? If you just had to ballpark, if it's uncapped, I mean, it depends on the day, right? Like, it's hard to hard to ball, ballpark. I would say that I have no idea. It's it's really hard for me to to just say like an average. I mean, at least 300 big blinds, I would think probably more than that amongst the regulars. So, yeah, I think that's like a great place to start. Like 300 big blinds is, you know, like you'd be unsurprised to see a 10-20 game running with uh, 300 big blind average stacks around the table. Whereas if you go to like a 1-2 or 2-5 game and you see 300, I mean, I don't think you would ever even, you could even possibly see that. Um, Maybe if you're playing in Texas where the games appear to play super huge, that's possible. But like most normal casinos, you're not going to see 300 big blind average stacks at one, two or two, five. You might not even see hundred big blind average stacks at, at one, two, at, at a lot of places where a lot of people are just buying in for like 50 bucks or like a hundred bucks. Um, and I think that's uh, as you progress up stakes, um, you know, the average is going to trend much closer to hundred big blinds or like 150 at five ten, and and even bigger at, at the stakes Brad is playing. Um, but I think that, that is also one of the biggest adjustments um, that I found myself having to make and, and probably another adjustment that I'm going to have to make if I decide to start taking shots at uncapped games is um, understanding how to play at much deeper stack depths than I previously had been playing. And I would say that 
this is a regret that I have as it relates to my live poker career. I don't regret letting someone like Garrett be on my left for prideful reasons. I would do the same exact thing today. I do regret buying in super deep when it's inappropriate because you can always add chips to your stack in the bigger games. You can always pull out a 5k chip and drop it onto your stack and load up, right? However, because of my experience playing online and the amount of times that I've dealt with having 100 big blinds, just starting out at you know 500 big blinds when I sit down not knowing anything about the makeup of the table or any of the players or anything like that, I think is a pretty sizable mistake that I made. And if I could do it over again, I would pretty much always start out at 100 big blinds until I got a feel for the players, just because I feel comfortable playing 100 big blinds. I know what to do. I know where all the buttons are. I know what my strategies look like. 500 big blinds is a totally different game than 100 big blinds. It's just totally different. And like, no matter how much pride or arrogance you have, you have to spend the time learning how to navigate the game tree at those depths. And it is just massive. Like it is, it is very, very, very difficult. And no matter how good you are playing 100 big blind poker, if you sit down against a live crusher who's playing 500 big blinds deep and you haven't really studied 500 big blinds, they're going to fuck your world up and there's nothing you can really do about it. So I would say that's that's one of my regrets as it relates to like moving up from the smaller games to the bigger games is just buying in. Again, I think this is ego and pride driven, just saying, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy in for 10K just to buy in for 10K. That, I think, is a strategic mistake, in my opinion. Are there any strategic reasons that you would want to buy in for 10K? Like, would you ever look at a game and say, like, hmm, okay, like, this looks like an appropriate situation to buy in for more than 100 bigs? Of course. There's uh, an obvious whale that has spun up a massive stack. Like, cover- covering the whale, I think, is different than just looking at a game you've never played in with a bunch of players who look like yourself, who are all playing 500 big blinds and being like, yeah, I'm going to buy in for how much they're playing for just because. I, I think that that's just a critical mistake. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's definitely a big, there's kind of like a, an ego slash self um, uh, kind of, I don't want to say like self-confidence thing, but I, I've played in some uncapped games um, in, I played in a lot of uncapped games actually in Korea. And one of the things that happens is like the game starts at two five and I'll buy in for like a thousand dollars, but like, all the other guys at the table are buying in for like 10 K and it sort of feels like, I don't know. There's definitely like this, like kind of sort of shitty feeling when you like walk into the game with like one tenth of this average stack, even though it's like 200 big lines. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely understand that, like that kind of that ego or that desire to fit in with, with everyone else. I think that the way that I frame it for myself is that I can sit down at pretty much any 510 or 1020 cash game in the world against eight other players and know that I'm have a positive hourly rate playing a hundred big blinds deep. Like I just know it 1000%. It's just, I'm that confident in my ability to, to play at that depth. But at 500 big blinds deep, there's certainly some configurations and players where I don't know if I'm making a positive hourly playing 500 big blinds deep. It's, it's a, it's a different thing. So I think that like 
the way that I would approach it, if I had to do it over again, would be to do a lot of study on 300 and 500 big blind stacks, understand like how things work differently as it relates to like sizing and structuring four bet, five bet, six bet bluffs. I mean, think about that, like six bet bluffs, like that, that's a thing, right? Because you're either flatting with your entire range or you're six betting with really good hands and then some not so good hands, right? Like, so basically figuring out those ranges at that depth. I mean, it, it's a tough game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that makes this conversation um, a little, like one like extra part of this conversation, I think, is that as you move up stakes, you will be playing deeper stacks, but also the opponents that you're playing against are going to be um, of a higher caliber. So like you're going to need to construct like a six bet bluff range, whereas like, you know, if you, Brad Wilson, were playing one, two, and somehow there were like 500 big blind average stacks, like you would have no problem. Like, you know, you probably would have no thoughts about buying in for 500 big blinds. No, uh, zero. Yeah. But like a big part of it is, yeah, I think kind of in conjunction with playing deeper is that like the respect level that you are required to have for your competition is also significantly higher, you know, in, at the uncapped games than they are. Um, I, I, th- I think it's self-assessment and acknowledging that like, Garrett is beating my brains in playing 500 big blinds deep. Like that's just reality. Somebody of his caliber is just beating the, that beating my brains in, but at a hundred big blinds, he's not. And so not putting myself in that position just makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Or would you recommend like, if you were, if you started out with hundred big blinds and somehow spun up a 500 big blind stack and, you know, tough player to your left also has 500 bigs, like what would you do in that situation? John, we both know the answer to this. What do you, what do you think I would do? <laughs> Maybe the listeners want to know whether you should quit in that spot or whether you should uh, whether you should keep sitting. I'm not going to say like exactly what they sh- ought to do, but what I do is I ain't fucking quitting. I can tell you that much. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not going to look at the dude next to me and be like, well, okay, I guess I'm going to leave now. Like that's that's not in my blood. Like uh, I'm going to quit too whenever much, I have to quit. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna quit whenever I'm tired, and I'm gonna quit on my own terms. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna force that decision on me. Gotcha. All right, that's what I thought. Just wanted to confirm. Yeah. Again, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's a fine line that I walk as it relates to uh, <laughs> arrogance and ego. But I never want to project that like I'm feeling uncomfortable battling against somebody else. Right. All right. Should we move on to number three. Yeah, we'll do number three now. So number three is small stakes are more passive. And this is a pretty pretty nice lead-in from our last our last talking point about playing deeper. So tell me about passivity as it relates to small stakes, John. I mean, I think <clears throat> passivity, small stakes, and weak players are all intertwined, where like weak players are going to be more passive and they're going to be at smaller stakes. Um, better players are generally more aggressive and playing closer to um, probably in what an equilibrium strategy looks like, which is significantly more aggressive than the average rec playing one, two live at the casino. So, yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think like one of the clearest examples of this is like when you move up stakes and suddenly you feel like the three betting percentage has just gone through the roof pre-flop and you're like, Oh, Oh my God. Like, I'm not used to getting three bet this often, or I'm not used to seeing these many three bets like this. Like, should I start four betting? Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, um, like I think that's a very kind of black and white example of the games getting tougher and more aggressive as you move up stakes is uh, the preflop 
three bet percentage? Yeah, I mean, when you asked whether I'd have a problem buying in for 500 big blinds at the smaller stakes, of course not, because they're not going to be putting me in the spots like they are at the bigger stakes. Mm-hmm. Like they're not going to be applying the pressure. A lot of times in high stakes live games, I mean, there's an example in the Bay Area at the Matrix where there was this older gentleman that he bought in for like 50K, right? Which is very, very deep what? at 10 and a quarter. Okay, 1025. Yeah. But he's like the nittiest of all nits. Like he's just ultra tight. Like his chip stack had, you know, cobwebs growing on it. Like the money, the money was just never in play. I mean, as crazy as this is, like somebody opened a 75 one time, three people called and he just made it 1500, right? Like, yeah, everybody knows what you got, man. That type of player. Yeah, let's play 50K deep. Who the fuck cares? Like, I, I, I could care less. That person's not going to be putting me into tricky, annoying, tough situations. But, like, whenever I have to start structuring, like, saying that I'm not going to have a five-betting range just to shorten my the, the pre-flop play, where, like, I don't want to start constructing, like, six-bet ranges, and so I'm just going to shorten it by having a pure flat of four bet. Like, yeah, those are players that are going to be putting you in spots and making you feel uncomfortable and making your life hell. And like, those are the type of players, you know, that, that I don't want to battle against ultra deep and at small stakes, like the passive players when aggressive is typically whenever they show aggression, it's just typically going to mean that they have a hand and whenever they don't, it just means that they don't there. There's not much deception to their game. Whereas, at the bigger stakes, like there's a lot of deception. So number four, big games end up bigger than where they started. One of the strategic differences between low stakes live cash games and high stakes live cash games. What do we mean by this talking point, John? Big games end up bigger than where they started. Um, so I have a lot of personal experience with this particular strategic point. Um, I think every single time I've played um, – larger than 510 or even 510 sometimes by the end of the night, the game is always at least twice as big. Um, I think every single time I've played 1020 in my life, the game has ended at like 10, 20, 40, or like just 20, 40, 80 sometimes. Um, and that just happens with kind of astounding regularity at, at, in, in my experience. Um, I would say like maybe like 80% plus, um, of the times that I've sat down at like five ten or bigger, um, not in the not in the U.S. California, California and Vegas, I think are, or maybe the U.S. is just like a slightly uh, different environment where like they have the plaques on the tables and like you're not allowed to like change the game from the plaque that's on the table. Whereas I guess like internationally or at least in Korea, like they just they're like okay if, if you want to just change the game to like PLO just out of the blue, then like you're. <laughs> open to do that um, if that's what you want and so like those games like always end up being like two or like two and a half times the size that they started and I think that like I think there's a lot of that requires you to have like a lot of preparation before coming into your session it's not like oh you're just going into play two five and you know it's going to be two five the whole time like you need to be kind of psychologically prepared to play significantly larger and you also need to just be like financially prepared where you're bringing in enough buy-ins for like two and a half times the stake that you're playing, because that could very easily just happen um, by the end of the night. Yeah. And it's something that you ought to be taking into consideration strategically that whenever you're playing higher stakes, there's a high likelihood that there's going to be straddles, that the stakes are going to get bumped up. That's just the nature of the beast. And 
if you're showing up to play high stakes and you're the person that like is saying, no, I don't want to straddle. I don't want to raise the stakes. You probably ought to move down and build your bankroll up a little bit. Because again, like it's an expected part of it. And if the whale at the table wants to have a mandatory straddle, if they want to move the stakes up, the stakes get moved up. That's, that's just the reality of it. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, you can rack up your chips and leave. And I think that's, that's reasonable, but I don't think you're going to do yourself any favors by like taking a hard line stance and be like, no, I'm not straddling. No, I refuse to move up stakes. Like typically in my experience, when that happens, it's like, okay, one of the pros will just get a floor man and make a bigger game. And then they just spread the bigger game. And then that player just gets left behind and nobody really feels much uh, compassion <laughs> for, for said player that sticks six to their guns and doesn't want to bump the stakes up. So I know that that's a little bit, again, maybe not something that is commonly talked about. I understand that like everybody's got a right to play for their money. It's their money, but you need to understand how these games are constructed and what they inevitably lead to as they kind of go on through the night. Yeah. I think there's also something to be said about the, the other type of player. Like, I think I'm the other type of player. Like I will never, like, I don't have the courage to say no when someone's like, Oh, let's start a straddle or let's, you know, the whale says like, Oh, let's, let's play like twice as big as we are playing now. Like I'll never be the person that says no, but I'm very likely to be the person that like feels super uncomfortable playing like 20, 40, 80, but somehow like gets, you know, sucked into it because everyone else wants to do it. And now I'm like sweating every single pot and like, you know, like three bets just feel like preflop three bets just feel uncomfortably massive to me. Um, and I think that's also not healthy as well. It's reasonable to be like, yeah, I'm playing 10, 20. I don't want to play 20, 40, 80. Like that's, a, that's a significantly bigger game than where you started at. And I think that like you reserve the right to say no. I mean, you reserve the right to say no at all points in this. Uh, it's more of like socially, should you say no if the whale wants to like double the stakes. And I think that like socially you probably shouldn't, you're probably not going to endear yourself to, you know, your contemporaries, the folks that you play against on a regular basis. Yeah. I think the correct thing to do is not say no, but just not play yourself. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, that's reasonable too, right? Just say, okay, good, good game guys. And rack up and, and head out. Like if you don't want to play eight X, because that's, that's reasonable to not want to play um, or, 4x it's reasonable to not want to play those stakes and not want to bump them up and if everybody does then you know you just take your ball and go home (laughs) i had the same ego problem as you though at commerce where like i didn't want to let everyone know that i was too scared of playing those stakes (laughs) and that's playing way bigger than i should have yeah i mean it it happens and obviously there's a downside to that too because then you can find yourself driving home scratching your head wondering how the fuck did I just drop 30k playing 10 20 no limit in one session when it's like yeah that was just four buy-ins um playing 10 20 40 80 or whatever it is all right so we got through the first four strategic differences between low and high stakes live cash games after the break we're going to talk about the environmental differences we've touched on some of them in our strategic uh differences segment because we like talking a lot and (laughs) It's, it's hard to stay on talking point. <laughs> so stick around after the break. We're going to talk about the environmental differences between low stakes and high stakes games. So stick around and don't miss it. Yeah, before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years. 
somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site, kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And preflop bootcamp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in bootcamp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played in what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I, I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re- really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month. And your link to join is chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp all one word or you can click through in the description box of this episode welcome back to this tactical tuesday episode with my student john where we're talking about the difference between low stakes and high stakes live cash games just a quick reminder to the listener we are firing up preflop bootcamp in just a couple of days It runs on the last Saturday of every single month. And if you would like to hop in, chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. Chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. Now, let's move on to the environmental differences. John, do you want to start us out by hitting the first bullet point? Sure. I actually think the first bullet point ties in pretty nicely with our last point from the strategic differences section where um, we mentioned that big games usually end up bigger than when they started. Um, And our first point on the environmental differences is that bigger games don't run as often as lower stakes games. Um, I think it's pretty common in most places that spread poker that one, two and two, five live cash often run either around the clock or very close to around the clock. You can always find, a pretty good two five or five five game at least in LA to sit in um, at any time of the day, any day of the week. Whereas um, I assume Brad, you don't have that luxury with higher stakes games. 
No, I mean, even up to like 510, sometimes there's no 510 game that's running in a room. There's just a bunch of people on the wait list. I, I think that like wherever the barrier to entry is higher, AKA you need more money to play a specific game, your player pool is going to be lower and they're just, those games just aren't going to run at the same frequency. And LA is a, a perfect example of, you know, a city that has a lot of money. You know, there's a lot of people with a lot of money. It's an affluent city. And even those bigger stakes games have trouble running. So whenever you get to a less affluent part of the country, yeah, it, it, sometimes getting even a 510 game off the ground it, it is tough. Like you know, I'm thinking of some like Florida, Florida card room specifically, not the Hard Rock, of course, but some of the other smaller rooms. 2-5 is going to be the biggest game that they spread. Yeah, and the reason, you know, why I brought up the last point from uh, excuse me, the strategic differences is that you often see the big games ending up bigger than when they started because these big games don't run as often. And when you have the opportunity, when you have the people together, when you have the fish or the whale at the table, like uh, I get the sense that what the pros and, and you know, what the, what the stronger players want is to kind of maximize this rare opportunity when, when you have it. Um, so, you know, when you, when you have the 10, 20 game and you have all nine people sitting, like, try as hard as you can to make it like 10, 20, 40 or 20, 40, 80. And, and I feel like that's why that last point and the strategic uh, differences happen so often is because these games don't run uh, around the clock. Yeah. And I, I realized that I could be coming off as a snob and an ass as it relates to my opinion on number four, the uh, big games ending up bigger than where they started. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the reality is that if you're playing in these big games and you want to double the stakes, well, there's only a couple of ways that you can exponentially increase your hourly rate and the lowest hanging fruit to double your hourly rate is double the stake of the game that you're playing. And that's the thing that I think most high stakes pros recognize intuitively. And if you're the one holdout that doesn't want to double the stakes, well, you're effectively <laughs> cutting everybody else's hourly in half, which they're probably not going to appreciate that very much. And you're, you're also cutting your own hourly rate in half at the same time right so yeah i'm with you like basically they don't run as often and so when they do run you need to maximize the opportunity make the most of the very few hands that you get per hour playing live poker you need to maximize your time spent playing cards number two difference environmentally is in the big games nobody yells at each other and I'll, I have a story to share as it relates to that, but I'll ask, you know, I'll ask you for some stories and the overall vibe of the smaller stakes games that you play in, John. Sure. Um, I guess first I'll start off by clarifying, like no one yells at each other. Um, I think what we mean by that is you see very, very little berating um, the higher stakes uh, you, you end up playing. And, you know, at like the one, two level, like official make a bad call on the turn for their stack and somehow get there on the river and the wreck or the stronger player will like yell at them or berate them or tell them how bad they played or why they should have folded the turn for like the next 10 minutes. And, you know, other people are other people at the table are like nodding along and then kind of telling the fish how bad he is and why he should have folded or why you shouldn't call preflop with six, three offsuit and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and I assume you, you see very little to, almost none of that at, at your stake spread. No, I played for years 
at Commerce, uh, playing 10, 20, and 20, 40 games, and very, very rarely. I mean, it, it was a very, very rare occurrence. I, I can't remember any off the top of my head where somebody was just actively making fun of another player for a decision that they made. But the story that I want to share was <laughs> when I was courting my wife, uh, the woman that became my wife, I was traveling back and forth from Los Angeles to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and she lived in Atlanta, and she's a poker dealer and Delta game. It was a small stakes game, but I was in between visits, and I wanted to see her. Like, <laughs> I mean, she's a very beautiful human being who I was very much interested in. And so in one of my one of my trips, I decided to go to a game that she was dealing, and it was at a place called Chateau Elan, which for those of you who aren't in the Atlanta area, it's it felt like it was out in the middle of nowhere. Like I feel like I drove for 45 minutes to get to this game. And then it is like, you know, like D'Angelo Hall played in the game, right? Like professional athlete, NFL player. Like it was a massive, massive home, like super affluent neighborhood. Nice. If you've ever seen the grape stomping video of the woman who is like stomping grapes and fell, it was like a viral video from 10 years ago. Like if you watch the beginning of that video, that's in Chateau Alon. Like you can see the house in the background that is just like a, you know, just a castle. Um, that That's the place that I was going. And so the game was one, two, no limit. So this is. <laughs> you guys are playing one, two, no limit. <laughs> yeah. This is 10 times smaller than what I expected to hear. 10 yeah. times smaller than what I'm regularly playing, right? I'm not going there to play poker, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So I go there and I show up. And I. what's funny is this was back in my, my days of like wearing a suit and dressing up to play poker, which was like a, a phase that I went through for a couple of years, which I think is is another interesting tangent of just dressing up and wearing a suit and like going to dry cleaners every time you're preparing to play poker and like wearing cufflinks and everything because people look at you differently. Like people, it's a whole different, different type of thing. But yeah, so I show up dressed in like my suit and singing about a girl and I'm playing poker and I played in the one, two game for maybe an hour, just like messing around. And the hand that I remember, I flopped a set on like ACE five tray and like raise somebody's c-bet and like they called and then the turn was like a four and they lead like a hundred into a hundred and i've got maybe four or five hundred back and i flat the lead and then the river pairs the board and they check and i jam and they call and (laughs) they go off like a rocket like they had some kind of deuce i don't even know how they had a deuce but it was like you know, they, they were just like, what did you think I have? I bet a hundred dollars. Like they, I mean, they just went on about berating me. Like, even though they paid off the river bet and technically I had the odds, to like, doesn't matter. doesn't matter the, the reality of the situation. Like <laughs> I also didn't think that like they had to have a deuce every time, but that's neither here nor there. But basically dude, like went on for like 15 minutes, just like actively antagonizing me. And it was something that like after playing the bigger stakes for years, I, I had never experienced that. I didn't care. I thought it was actually hilarious. Just like a hilarious situation where I'm playing 10 times smaller than I'm used to playing. And like some guys going off on me, like when I could 
legitimately care less about the result of the game. I'm there to, uh, <laughs> to, to speak to, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's my little story about like just the difference in like the bigger stakes and the smaller stakes, because the bigger stakes, like if somebody is actively making a mistake, especially if they're a reg, you keep your mouth shut. You do not say a word. You just let it go. And if it's a wreck, well, obviously you keep your mouth shut and you don't say a word because that's polite and respectful. And like those games, like we mentioned before, they don't always run. And when they do run, there's typically a reason why they're running a player or two players that they're running around. And you don't want to give those players a bad experience so that they never come back because then your games just don't run in the future. Yeah. I mean, I have a similar story. Um, and I think this story is a really good example of what you just said about like not letting wrecks or regs alike know that they're making mistakes. Like you want them to keep making mistakes if they are. Um, <clears throat> this was like very, very early on when I was like, had just started playing one, two, no limit. I was in a cash game and I thought being balanced meant that like you open good hands and weak hands. From <laughs> like that's where I was in my poker career. So like, I opened like deuce four suited or something under the gun thinking like, <laughs> I should probably open some bad hands too. For and like, I was playing against like, uh, uh, I mean, I guess none of us were pros, but he was like one of the strongest players in the card room. One, two was like the biggest game that ran there. And, um, he's someone that I had a lot of respect for and, uh, got, ended up getting into a hand with him with deuce four suited somehow got to the river and I ended up making a straight and it went to showdown. And like the reg, like said some like, kind of like in passing like made some like scathing remark about like oh like we're opening deuce four suited for like deuce four from under the gun right and i remember like at the time like and that like kind of like really hurt my feelings i was like wow this guy that i like have a lot of respect for and like i kind of like wish i could like play poker like him like thinks that like i'm like an idiot right and i was like okay like well like let me like go back and like google online and like just see like what should i be opening from like you know what what's like a reasonable opening range and like that like scathing remark made me like significantly better at poker where i'm like no longer opening deuce four suited from under the gun and like i don't know like i like i remember that experience and i remember thinking like okay i should never like say anything like that. even in like passing like sometimes it's really easy to let those things slip i think especially like when you get sucked out on a big pot or like just like the way you say nice hand or something to someone, I, I think like can definitely kind of give off that same, uh, kind of that same feeling of like, dude, you just made him like, you should not be doing what you just did. Um, so yeah, that's sort of my story for why uh, I don't kind of braid anyone or, or yell at uh, people and, and why I think, you know, other smart pros and, and uh, smart recs don't do that as well is because you know people are making mistakes like you, it's worth way more for them to keep making mistakes than it is for you to kind of have the ego boost of showing everyone else at the table that you know what's right and wrong. Yeah, it's just, it's passive aggressive and inadvertently creating the monster that that is you, right? Like saying, "Oh, you're not doing things right," and then you you take that as, "Hey, I'm not doing things right." So let's see what I can do better, which is not really the place you want to drive people to try to figure out what they can do better than what they're currently doing. That that creates a nice little segue into our third point here. Bigger games have mutual respect amongst pros and recs. There's no or minimal patronizing. And I guess since I led in, I would like to get your thoughts first and then I will add on. Um, I don't know if you had any different ideas about like how this point... Um 
is any different from point two, but I, I feel like they're very similar where it's the same idea where you don't want, if, if your opposition is making a mistake, you don't want to draw any extra attention to it. Um, and I feel like that's a lot of the patronizing in live poker is someone makes a bad call or, you know, does sucks out in some way. And, and um, someone else at the table, like has to let them know um, usually in a, some sort of patronizing way that they messed up the hand and got very lucky to win. Yeah. It's not exactly what, what I'm talking about here though. Oh, okay. What I'm, what I'm saying is like at high stakes games, the great players have an awareness that if there's a wreck that's playing, we'll call the wreck somebody like Bill Perkins, right? Okay. Bill Perkins is wildly successful in life and poker is a hobby that he enjoys doing. Oh, okay. And, and so there's a respect amongst the pros and basically the, the respect stems from even though this player is a loser in this game, like they're losing money per hour, they are way more successful than like, this is how I think of it than me in life. They have achieved and done things that are like next level top 0.0001% of human beings accomplished the things that they've accomplished that have allowed them to play in a game and be able to lose 10, $20,000 and be like, yeah, whatever. Like I'm just, who cares? Right. So there's that respect amongst the pros and then, you know, the whales that play that like, yeah, even though they're losing in this game, like they're winning in life. And that's something that, that you can respect and, and that I think ought to be respected. And then on the flip side, I think that the whales respect the pros and the pros diligence, the pros ability to make it in this cutthroat, really tough game. And so just amongst both sides, there's this level of mutual respect. And so because of that, the patronizing that I'm talking about is like when, you know, when a whale who wants to improve, who enjoys playing poker, asks an opinion on a hand, like, man, did I mess that up? And you're like, nah, man, you played it great. Like, that's patronizing to me. That's bullshit. And like, don't do that. Like, tell them like, yeah, I think you, you could have played that a little better. Like, I, I think maybe you want to think about this, this, or this because they want to improve, right? They're seeking your help. They look to you as somebody that is playing poker at a higher level. They respect you. So show them the respect in answering honestly and, and not like trying to butter them up. I've said it before on the show, but like, they've got a very sensitive bullshit detector and they will know if you're just blowing smoke up their ass to tell them what they want to hear. Right. Yeah. So I think like being honest and just telling them like it is, they respect that. So I think that like, that's the thing that you see at low stakes where people patronize the whale, like, ah, oh, what could you do? You know? Yeah. You should have lost that thousand big blind pot with like top pair, top kicker. Can't get away from it. Can't fold it in a million years. Right. Like that's not going to fly in the higher stakes game. So I think that like, to, in my opinion, that's just a major difference. Yeah, I think that speaks a lot to the um, kind of the way that high stakes players treat the game and like the other players in the game where they, like you said, like it's it's more about like actual relationship building. And whereas in like the one-two game, I feel like a lot of, you know, I mean, there's just so many fish that like you don't need to be particularly nice or friendly to, you know, one particular fish or whale. And like what that ends up leading to is just, uh, like a lot of the patronizing that you that you see, like it's people are just not investing, like you know, their full emotional or their full uh, kind of their full ability to to build a relationship with the fish because they know that you know at one two there's a thousand of these guys just waiting to 
to play. I would say like with there being no clear benefit to not be patronizing, I would just say like it's good for business in general just to answer people honestly. Be authentic. Don't just – don't bullshit people. I, I think that like just from a human being perspective, we ought to respect one another more than that to to kind of do that. So like – yeah, even if I have nothing to gain and somebody asks my honest opinion and they're like a losing player in the game, I, I've I've never shied away from giving my honest opinion. Like if they pull me to the side and they're like, what, what would you have done differently? I would I just tell them straight up, like, this is what I would have done. This is what you you maybe should think about next time and leave it at that. And and I think that like again, this is a this is a thing that is counterintuitive where you're not gaining any any edge. By doing it, you're, you may be losing edge at the end of the day. I find it pretty unlikely just because I know how hard it is to coach people and get concepts to sink into people's brains. They don't just they don't just absorb it and execute it instantly, no matter what anybody might think. But um, yeah, it's just it, it's just the right thing to do. It's a good human thing to do. You you don't feel shitty when you're walking away from the table by just lying to people. Yeah, definitely a big difference between the larger stakes games and the smaller stakes games for sure. And the fourth environmental difference, we have politics. And this is a thing that I don't have a ton of experience in because private games weren't a big deal back when I was in the live streets, significantly in the live streets, I should say like seven years ago before I transitioned back to online because I got married to said woman that i was <laughs> going to talk to at the one two game uh let me let me uh spin this question phrase it slightly different differently for you then when you were traveling to la to play high six live cash you know i presume most of the time there are only one maybe two tables of your stake running how do you make sure that you get a seat in that game when it when it does run like how do you make sure that you're one of the first eight or nine people um, and you don't get shut out because I feel like that's that's a really big deal when the games don't run. If you don't, and you know, people are presumably not leaving the game because it doesn't run ever. Like if you get shut out, you, you could potentially be shut out for the whole you know two days or whatever it runs. Yeah, I mean, I sort of magooed my way into getting in in the games, and the way that I magooed my way into getting in the games was just really by following the template that I've we've talked about here in this episode of not really causing much conflict, being genuine and authentic to the players that I battle against. And you'd be surprised at how the relationships between like the pros and the floors and the chip runners work, where if you're a dick and you treat people poorly, other players take notice and other players with relationships to the floors are going to take notice and they will talk about that, right? When they're talking about getting a game together, that will be something that's taken into consideration. Is this person a dick or are they cool to play with? And so that that I think is step one, is just being a cool person to the players that you're playing against, being happy, uh, not antagonistic to the whales or even the pros that, that you're battling against. I think that that takes you a long way. And then secondarily, I guess it, it's my sense of humor to kind of joke around with people and like, I've never met a stranger, I guess. Is that, <laughs> that, is that an expression? I'm, I'm somebody that's never really met a stranger. Like I, I make connections with people really, really quick, and especially like chip runners and floor people that I interact with, people that are running the board, that are calling out the names. Like I talk to them, ask how they're doing, 
again, I, I don't think it's anything special, but it's just like, uh, they're not just somebody who's going to get my chips. They're a human being. And so asking about their day, treating them like a human being, I think that is something that worked in my favor accidentally because the way that it worked out for me was I was staying at commerce in the crown plaza. And when you're staying at commerce, you can like call down and get put on the boards. And so because I talked to the chip runners and had relationships with them in the floor, like they kind of just took it upon themselves to do a thing that like I had never considered doing. They would just add me to the board whenever there was a good game. Like they're like, I know Brad's in the casino. I know he's in his room. So like, let's put BW on the board and call my room. And like, there are plenty of times where I'm like, you know, just watching TV or whatever and get a call unexpectedly. And it's, it's a chip runner or floor saying, BW, we got a seat for you down here. Get down here. That sounds like the dreams. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and then, so I would go down and I would get in games that I had no, I had no, uh, plans of playing in and i didn't know that the game was good because i'm obviously in my room but like they just took it upon themselves to do that do me that solid and so i realized like oh this is a pretty big benefit right (laughs) this is a this is a pretty nice boost to the hourly rate getting your name automatically put on boards when the games are good so i kind of took it to the next level of tipping them very well whenever these situations kind of went down and giving them incentive to continue doing me that solid because that's very nice and generous thing. And, you know, to be honest, like I didn't really tip them a ton before that. So they didn't have that incentive in mind when they did that, but it was just sort of a thing that organically happened. Like, Oh shit. Like I, I, yeah, thanks man. Here you go. Let me take care of you. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's like a great example. I think of sort of the different types of relationships that um, become meaningful to you as you move up stakes. Whereas like those relationships with the chip runner of the floor, when you're playing like one, two or two, five, probably, well, for one, you're never going to need help or trouble, have trouble getting a seat in those games. But uh, two, like, because you're never going to have trouble getting a seat in those games, um, you know, you don't, I don't really particularly think about like getting to know like the chip runners or, or people like that super well. Um, but yeah, I can totally see how, how from your story that um, understanding the the crew that like works the board and like works the high limit high limit room is um is really really important if you're going to be spending the majority of your week there uh working yeah and we'll close down this episode of tactical tuesday with this final this final story of said chip runner who's just great guy i don't know if he still works in commerce again this was seven years ago but jose there was one time specifically where i was playing in a game and my game broke up and i was getting a massage so I had 15 minutes left of my massage and I'm just kind of sitting there at an empty table getting a massage and it wraps up. So I go cash out and I'm headed to my room and I realized that I had a pink 5k chip in my pocket and it was not there. Like I, I just didn't know where it was. And while I was getting a massage, like it must've just fallen out, right? Like onto the floor and the chip runner, Jose picked it up, immediately reported it. And they went to the cameras, they saw that it fell out and it was worth 5k to me, right? Like that's another instance of like, when you treat people well, and you're just like a a decent human being, like good things tend to happen. I mean, he didn't tell me that it had fallen out. He didn't hand it to me because protocol was to just turn it in. Right. And, And I think like 
the benefits of being a decent human being are just massive as it relates to having a career in the poker space. And I would say too, like as, as it relates to politics, grease palms, I guess we'll just, (laughs) it's just that simple tip floor, take care of them. If you take care of the floor, if you take care of the chip runners, they will take care of you. And that is money that comes back in a, in a really big way with those kind of folks who are wielding some significant power as it relates to like getting you in good games. Like at the end of the day, they're sort of the gatekeepers to, to whether you get to make a lot of money or not. Right. And, and you want to treat them well. And yeah, for, for multiple reasons. So anyway, it just always pays to be a decent human being. That's how we're going to wrap up this Tactical Newsday. John, thank you once again for joining me. If you're listening to this right now, let me know what you think of this structure, this format of Tactical Tuesday, and we will catch you next week.